Hey, Power Athlete Nation, before we get into the juicy stuff for the podcast, I want to introduce you to our good friends at Thorn Supplements. Thorn is an industry leader and provides us with the best supplements in the game. I've been taking Thorn for a lot of years. Uh, as soon as I met him, and more importantly, being recommended by some pretty heady individuals, it has been really the industry standard. And uh, we've always said, if you're going to take supplements, make sure you're getting testing done and making sure you're taking the best supplements available. Um, Thorne's tagline, they're investing in a healthier future, could not be more true. And if you're interested in seeing what we take and what we recommend, go to thorne.com slash you slash power athlete. And if you click on there, you'll see what we're taking and what we recommend. And also you get a 20% discount. So go check them out. And once again, that's thorn.com slash you slash power athlete to see what we take. And also for a 20% discount, check it out. Thorn. Hey everyone. Thanks for tuning into power athlete radio featuring the crew. Where a former pro football player and a D3 All-Star use strength and conditioning as an excuse to talk about anything but. Now here's John and Tex. So, welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio, the premier podcast of strength and conditioning. Where we get to chop it up with our good friends, Mr. Matt Zanis and Mr. Nick Kyle. Doc, AK. Doctor. Doctor? Uh, doctor, I, doctor? I mean, I know they're doctors, but, you know, so is um, Joe Biden's wife. And we have to refer to her as doctor, but she's a PhD. These guys are actually DPTs, doctors of physical therapy. We're like dentists, really. <laughs> are podiatrists really doctors? I think they are. Sure. You go to medical school? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Dr. Emily? She's great. And she's a podiatrist, right? Uh-huh. Functional podiatrist. Well, well, the weird part is, is her first name is Doctor and her last name is Emily. So. Doctor, Doctor Emily. <laughs> <laughs> That's how she's in my phone to this day. Is actually Doctor, Doctor Emily. Oh, yeah. Doctor, Doctor. So, sorry, Doctor Matt Zanis, Doctor <laughs> Nick Kyle. Thanks for joining us on Power Athlete Radio. Thanks for having us, man. So, dude, you guys have been here all week, uh, working with us, and uh, for we just got done doing a five day event for our friends at Naval Special Warfare here private gig here at Power Athlete. And so you guys flew in and uh, thank you very much for coming in, dude. It was awesome. And it's always enlightening for me to hear another perspective other than Tex and I's echo chamber. So it, it, it's good to expand perspectives, right? Yeah. yeah. And I feel like we learn something new each and every time we do one of these. Yeah. Uh, what did we learn this time? Oh God. That was actually the question I was going to pose okay. uh, in the evening, but this is great. So y'all had the opportunity to hear Power Athlete methodology uh, as it's more evolved and, and perfected and specialized for our individuals that were attending here. So what pieces and takeaways did y'all pick up that maybe sparked or created a connection? So I, I think, you know, in, uh, in my experience uh, with, with methodology as a whole, uh, it's really fascinating to see what we do in, in the block one and kind of that, that base foundational methodology and then expanding that out into these guys, because then we can start actually like working into the nuances of those those subtleties within things like the dead bug and kind of the application of the uh, uh, X, Y, Z axes and, and those types of things. So to me, it's kind of like looking at undergrad where you learn a little bit of everything and it's real didactic, you know, just kind of binary, this, yes, no. 
And then as you go up through the educational levels, everything becomes more and more gray. And that's where you start learning how to say like, well, maybe sometimes, you know, sure. um, and you have so much more uh, area to, to be able to expand and to start searching rather than just being yes, no. I think, you know, to add to that too, one of the biggest um, light bulb moments for me this time around was how important it is to focus on the simplicity of things. Mm. Like the way you guys wrote that methodology of strength and conditioning, it's really simple when you look at it from the standpoint of we're looking at three planes of motion, you got your definition of athleticism, every kind of fits, everything kind of fits into that model, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't need to overcomplicate a strength conditioning program, like focus on the basis, focus on good movement, focus on progressive overload, and everything else is going to take care of itself. And I think, you know, going back to, to Nick's point of like what we learned in undergrad and PT school is it's very, it's very focusing on the minutia, right? We had this magnifying glass of looking directly at a specific area of the body uh, when it comes to pain or injury, and we overcomplicate the shit out of things for the most part. So being able to take a step back and get more of that, that 10,000 foot view allows us to look at human movement as more simplistic in nature, meaning that we can add a simple intervention into there with good clinical reasoning, good um, eyes for movement, and the human, human body and the brain is a self-organizing organism, right? It will take care of itself. And when you marry those two together, um, it, it's one of those things we don't have to focus on control. We can seek to, you know, to understand a little bit more and the rest of the outcomes are going to take care of themselves, right? It's going to be way more positive and be able to, to do this now for the long term, for the longevity piece. You know, the other thing that, that uh, I think about with that is, is when we say something, what was taken away from it? How do these guys take it and integrate? And it's, it's really interesting and it, it kind of reinforces so much of what Matt and I do clinically mm -hmm. uh, in that, you know, it's not about adding a ton of extra movements into somebody's program. It's about how do we take the program you have and actually adapt and fit that to where you're at right now and then how do we progress that forward? So instead of giving somebody, you know, here's your 45 minute warm up, here's your 45 minutes of PT work, here's your your uh, your Jack Street or your your Johnny Wad and then you can do some other stuff supplemental like it's it's the integration of all of it. And that was kind of the feedback that I got from a lot of the guys they appreciated that we recognize you guys are tight on time. You have a limited amount of that. That's a, that's a very valuable resource to them. And so they don't have three, four hours to cycle through training. They need to understand how to put these things together in, in a really digestible package. And so sure. that, that's, that was the, uh, one of the coolest takeaways that I had from them. Yeah. I think that it's important to understand that like all the strength conditioning and rehabilitation stuff. And we talk about this all the time. It's, it falls on the same continuum, right? It's just at a different starting point. Sure. Right. And then that allows us to uh, look at something like uh, like human movement. And with these guys, like Nick said, they, they don't have enough time in the day. Most actually most busy people don't have enough time in the day. Sure. So where can we do this more as uh, an addition by subtraction and go once again, go back to that simplicity piece and make things more efficient? Well, and also be able to get more out of less. Like yes. if you, you know, everybody's going to do you know, whatever they're going to do. But if you can do it well, then the quality goes up. So you made a great uh, statement that our bodies will, or maybe it was Nick, uh, we will default to volume over quality. Uh, we'll, we'll always take uh, quantity over quality of movement. Sure. And, and it's a natural evolutionary trait, right? So um, we're just not, not able to dissociate that far enough now to recognize that uh, we no longer have an emergent situation that we have to be able to extract ourselves from. We need to be able to take the time to sit down and say, okay, we can 
uh, improve the overall quality of these movements uh, and integrate it into movement, big M, right? Yeah. No, the, uh, the, the cool one I enjoyed was uh, setting up different stations for the x-axis. So mm -hmm. we used a transformer bar. I think we used a Duplo bar. We used a half-field uh, half bar, and then we used uh, the west side belt squat. Mm -hmm. And we, we cycled guys through and had them actually, uh, you know, do their best x-axis, their best bilateral you know, hip hinge squat, and then go through and figure out which one actually allowed them to move, uh, you know, move best. And then once we figured out, you know, and then we said, hey, guys, like, which one felt best? Which one did you, which one looked the best? Which ones did you guys like? And then allowed them to kind of go gravitate towards it and then work them up to something heavy and actually see everybody kind of, like, create the connection of, mm -hmm. like, oh, it's not just this. It's it's this bigger overarching principle. And then when we transitioned yesterday where we were taking them through the transitional movements where it was X, Y, and Z, uh, I think all of a sudden that was, like, a big light bulb moment for the guys. Yeah, I think, you know, what happens to a lot of us, including these guys, we get stuck with the blinders on. Like we're so we're so focused on the day to day that we get into a routine. Uh, also human nature, right? We like routines and we will always default to that path of least resistance. Uh, something that doesn't create a lot of that doesn't take a lot of energy. We don't have to think about it a lot. And I think it was great to help them understand there are other ways to do things based on your own body. And that was kind of one of the main themes. I think the common thread throughout this entire week was having them tune inward. Right to be able to develop that level of conscious awareness where they're learning about what's going on inside their body so that they can then take that into their training and do what's best for them mm -hmm. in particular. I thought it was kind of cool in that, that uh, bilateral hip hinge piece where we were playing with uh, different bars, different variants. All these guys, when they came in, I think pretty much everybody was like, yeah, we do half field squats, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so... Uh, you took the opportunity to show them what they were actually doing and then how to how to change that around but given four opportunities four different stations and let them kind of go free and say like okay which one do you like the most uh most of the guys sheared away from from yeah. uh from the hatfield which was that was interesting to me uh, yeah. you know if this is what you're most comfortable with and they all have that go hard want to be the the uh, the strongest guy in the room, they, they definitely want to not be the weak link. And so uh, a lot of them, I think, would default back to what is most comfortable to them. Right? Half field squats, if you do them the way we do them, with uh, you know trying to get the knee over the toe and actually just holding on, like playing the piano real light, are not very enjoyable. No. They're really enjoyable when you hold on like a roller coaster and sit way back and just leverage the shit out of a ton of weight. And uh, that's actually way more fun because you're like, wow, look at that, I just squatted 800 pounds pretty easily. But if you do it the way that we do it, it actually it equates to your normal squat, if not makes it a little bit harder because that weight is, you know, basically smashing you forward and you're not necessarily using your hands. You're just kind of like lightly sitting them there just for the balance piece. Well, and how many of these guys uh, had that that really rigid thoracic spine, that that bent and broken position? And so if they're levering their arms back, they're, they're accentuating that even further, kind of like what we did with the... Uh, the thoracic extension deadlift. Mm -hmm. I mean, we highlighted the position they want to be in, and that was we tried to bring them out of it. A lot of those guys were shaking and struggling. So they're actually just, they're giving into what they wanted to do anyway, right? So overextending, over flexing, and then giving themselves a better mechanical lever. And so it, they've created functionally a leg press and taken their trunk out of it. Sure. 
And, it, you know, it's um, interesting to still stick on the theme with the Hatfield squats. Hey, Power Athlete Nation. If you enjoyed this podcast and you're interested in supporting Power Athlete, getting involved with Power Athlete, myself and the crew here in Austin and in the global network, you can do it a few different ways. You can link on shop.powerathletehq.com. You can buy merch, you know, be the hammer, uh, move the dirt, all the really amazing merchandise that we put together. And we're going to have a bunch of cool stuff coming up here at the end of the year for Black Friday. Uh, that's going to blow your mind. We also have the best training programs in the game. I think the most efficient, most powerful, uh, well thought out, elegant programs that you will find. We're easy to get a hold of. Just go to powerathletehq.com, look for training. It's going to take you over to our best in class partner, Train Heroic, where you can look at Jack Street. If you're just trying to put on thick gobs of muscle and you want to get jacked as fuck, Jack Street's your program. We got Field Strong train like an athlete, allow us to foster and develop athleticism. That's really our flagship program. We're trying to make athletes more athletic. We got Bedrock, that beginner program. We got Grindstone for those of you guys that are in the fight, need a flexible program that lives with you. If you're still into getting your face melted by the dirtiest, nastiest, saltiest wads on the planet, check out Johnny Wad. You're looking for a little bodybuilding, check out Johnny Bod. And if you're looking for a program, if you're in a situation where you go in harm's way, you're looking to kick in doors and take names and break hearts and all that good stuff, check us out at Hammer, the holistic athlete movement readiness program that was developed uh, with some of the baddest dudes on the planet. So you can check us out in the programs. If you are interested in getting involved in the Block One Network with Power Athlete, you can first check out academy.powerathletehq.com. You can check out our methodology. And if you want to go that Block One track, travel out here to Austin and prove that you are composed of the metal that we're looking for to be in our block one network. So we're easy to get a hold of. You can support us in any way. So if you uh, are enjoying this podcast and really like this content, find a way to get involved, giving you a couple different options. We're looking forward to seeing you. Thanks. There, that was being used as kind of like a workaround mm -hmm. because a lot of them weren't really um, competent or proficient in a standard barbell back squat sure. for good reason. Like a, a, a stiff upper back, it's going to start to limit shoulder range of motion. It's not going to make it mechanically efficient from a bar position standpoint. So then I think you have to come down to the, the point of why we train, right? What's the intention behind the movement? And then what are we trying to get out of it? What's the impact on the body? And for that X, it, that X axis, it really doesn't matter where we're actually placing the load. It's going to be the, the load place. It's going to be the best one for that individual yep. based on their functional limitations that we could still work our trunk position in that X axis, X axis, X axis for these guys um, in particular, to brace themselves in a in a good way should they come into contact in combat, right? Yeah. But we can manipulate setup to target Absolutely. specific regions we want to target: foot position, uh, staggered stance, split squat stance. So there's things within a program that we can manipulate to then target limitations, weakness, or athleticism. Not one way to do things. Can you explain that deadlift variation? I think that's a good one that. Kind of look like a Jefferson curl, curl almost. Like a half Jefferson curl. Yeah, it's kind of kind of like a Jefferson curl. The big difference is that you know with Jefferson curl, you're you're really isolating into the spine, right? So uh, as you roll down, you're you're not taking that lever further away from you, and you're not stabilizing at any one point necessarily. Uh, not to uh, sound diminutive towards Jeffersons, I love them. I think they're they're awesome. So before we differentiate, what explain the setup and execution quickly. Okay, so thoracic extension deadlift, basically we're gonna set up a standard barbell. Uh, we're gonna get into our deadlift stance and position, set the shoulders, and then I'm gonna lift the bar off the floor 
uh, right around to about my knee height. Um, and I say about because it really depends on your arm length. And the goal with this is going to be stabilizing the hips, I, uh, getting an ISO contraction for the hamstrings, the quads, uh, maintaining hip height and position, maintaining the low back in a stable, solid position while you're holding the weight, and then getting movement through the thoracic spine. So really focusing in on protraction, retraction of the shoulder blade, and uh, true extension and flexion in a loaded position for the, uh, for the, the thoracic spine itself. Yeah. Yeah, and a step back, anyone that's followed our programs, Jimmy Buffett, accomplishing the same purpose but without load. Sure. We can set it up and identify a limitation, uh, not an ability to organize their shoulder girdle and finding the rhythm of protraction, retraction. If they do have that, then we level it up and use load to then accomplish our movement goal. Matt, you dropped this line a few times. Can you explain the importance of having load to restructuring tissue? Mm, this yeah. is something we've explored on this You podcast. mean I can't remodel tissue with a foam roller? Uh, you could try. <laughs> I mean, technically, like, that is load application. Like 10,000 pounds per square yeah, inch to remodel tissue. Sensing a little your load in there, gonna, John. There, I, yeah. Wow, because I was landing on pretty thick. <laughs> this, this beautiful awareness. <laughs> this is something. Tex, you, you've come so far that now you can spot humor, sarcasm. Uh, a week with those guys? I have now a PhD in sarcasm. But uh, dude, needless you, to say, I don't want to go down into it. But I'm just the, saying, uh, like, uh, the, uh, the shit talking was pretty good. And then last night, it just took it up a notch. We went to the bar. Anyway, the <laughs> we've me. explored Sprite this on Caldeets. Caldeets has expressed this on the podcast a little bit with Starrett, which was interesting to see how uh, he's expanded his perspective. But now let's get into it. Why do we need load to remodel tissue, increase the health of our tissue, rather than just beat it to death with a foam roller or lacrosse ball? I think we have to, when we talk about this, we have to talk about it from like a, a biomechanical piece, physiological piece, and also from a um, neurological standpoint as well, right? So we're having a conversation right now. We're all talking. We've been talking all week to various people. We're using the English language to communicate to each other, okay? The body and the nervous system also use a language to communicate, but their language is force. It's load. It's stress. That's how we make adaptation. So when we go to something... Um, like a foam roller, for example, it's just not a one, it's not a high enough stress load to make any significant changes, but then two, it's acting more on a neurological level anyway, okay? So it's a big fancy term called descending noxious inhibitory control, DNIC. Spelling? Yeah, go for it. No. <laughs> M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. Yeah, so descending noxious inhibitory control, which the analogy I give people for this all the time is if you hit your knee off of a coffee table, What's your instinctual thing to do? Just kind of like rub it real hard to make it feel better? Kick the coffee table. Kick the coffee table back, break it. Curse. Lots, lots of expletives. Fucking throw it in the outside. <laughs> and and the, the whole point of that is you're, you're like scrambling nerve signals, right? Uh, and you're desensitizing those tissues. And so, for example, with the, you know, kicking your knee on the coffee table, it stimulated a lot of the deep receptors inside the tendon. And when you do that superficial rubbing, it just takes the brain attention and places it elsewhere. Okay, so that's essentially what foam rolling is doing. It's desensitizing the nervous system a little bit. Um, but then we talk about the force and load structurally to the tissues in the body. I'm going to take this back with the common theme to, to Nick's um, thoracic extension deadlift. because I think it's a really great piece of awareness for these guys. It's a completely different stimulus, right, to their nervous system, to their body, where it's novel enough that it was, from a, no a novel standpoint, the brain 
uh, didn't know what to do with it. So it's already calling a lot more attention to it. It's paying more attention to it. It's going to take it a lot more seriously than the low load of, of going on a foam roller. But at the end of the day, like muscles are really stupid in nature. They just respond and contract based on the positions of the joints. And if we keep using um, the upper back stiffness as, as our talking point here, a lot of these guys move the muscles concentrically, right? We don't do a whole lot of full um, lengthening and, and going through this excursion of an eccentric hitting uh, an isometric at that completely lengthened out state of the muscle and then asking it to reverse that and contract and produce force out of that position, okay? So that's when tissues are the healthiest is when they can go through this excursion. We, we talked about it with the pelvic floor. We talked about it um, with the foot and pronation and supination and the same thing with this upper back stiffness. So a lot of these guys get stiff there because they're constantly producing a concentric force with things like bench pressing and shoulder pressing, and then doing a, uh, like a row or something from a very neutral center point position. And what Nick was doing is asking um, the thoracic spine to move through a full excursion and take all those parascapular muscles, all the muscles that go up and down the spine and asking them to lengthen out fully, go to the isometric point, contract and come back through center to a fully shortened point. And from a structural standpoint, now we're getting way more overlap at the, at the actin and the myosin and the muscles. We're creating full uh, tension, compression, shear forces where they need to be on the tendons. And you're creating a, like a more holistic environment um, for movement at that point. You know, the one thing, um, and you know, when you guys did your uh, pre-work and your prep mm -hmm. and like kind of went through and evaluated everybody, there was this like universal, like everybody's got tight hips. And what was interesting, uh, mm -hmm is as we were squatting and once we were getting people into good position, teaching them good mechanics, knees track over the toes, toes straight ahead, get into a position low in the squat where all of a sudden I was getting just to drive the knees out a little bit just to open them up. Everybody squatted way below parallel and squatted well to the point where people didn't look like they had tight hips, um, you know, because that, that's something we encounter. And so was it the fact that their hips were tight because they didn't understand uh, the mechanics and going forward, now that we've effectively found their, their most true squat, getting the squat to that range of motion and actually using those new range of motions mm -hmm. under load and active waist, will that effectively increase their hip mobility? So yeah. 100%. And, and, and really, that came back down to uh, our discussion around the spine uh, on our last day. And the first thing I did in that was demonstrate dissociative movement, right? And so basically, the idea of moving various areas of your body uh, rhythmically uh, against each other. It takes about 10 seconds. It's a cool little party trick. The idea is all of a sudden you gain all this range of motion rapidly off of something that was completely unrelated to the task, right? And the, the, the whole thing comes down to the neurological system. And so our, our nervous system runs everything that's going to happen within the body. That's why training programs have to be uh, used not at random, but based around what is the neurological integration for those movements. And so these guys, you know, uh, out of, out of everybody we looked at, I, I want to say 99% had some report of low back pain. Mm -hmm. And out of that 99%, I think almost all of them were relatively uh, excessively mobile in the lumbar spine, right? Is, uh, is it is, I'm just wondering if like the, if they have hypermobile lumbar spine, does the body naturally make the hips uh, more rigid, more stiff, and then the upper back real stiff because it's like it's trying to almost like we can't have too many multiple uh, over uh, hypermobile joints. Yeah, it's it, because these guys are going to do things in a loaded way. So, I mean, like you could probably look at, at somebody like a, a, a yogi or something like that that doesn't necessarily carry uh, the responsibility and load that these guys will. 
Um, and they can be relatively mobile throughout their entire system without too much trouble, but these guys are applying a uh, pretty good deal of load. So it, I would say it's load, kind of- Load, rotation, mm -hmm. shear, force, I mean, all these things. Right, you know, compression and distraction, and et cetera. Um, but you know, it, to me, that's kind of a chicken or the egg. Was the low back relatively mobile and then everything stiffened around it or did everything stiffen around it and so therefore the low back has to be mobile? I would go with the latter because uh, you know, everybody's from a, a different background and yet there was this commonality of like movement patterns and like things that we saw were unique to those like individuals. And so I would think that like, you know, the function of the job, the training, whatever it is, ends up kind of maybe like highlighting these areas and more importantly, kind of crystallizing them. Yep. Well, and, and uh, you know, again, going back to this, this concept with the neurological system, if, if the brain perceives an area as being unknown, you know, if I'm going into a movement that my brain does not recognize readily or a range of motion that the brain doesn't necessarily recognize, um, it's going to react in such a way to create control and stability. And so the path of least resistance for control and stability is making musculature feel tight, right? Like Matt mm -hmm. said, uh, muscles are relatively simple. They, they can move shit and they can keep shit from moving. And that's pretty much it. And so our brain will use those in such a way to try to control joint. It essentially comes down to safety and security at that point. If the brain feels like you're, you're not safe moving into a particular range of motion or you can't control that joint throughout that range of motion, like the hips, it will neurologically, like Nick said, give them a perception of something. And that perception of something can manifest in ways like pain, can manifest in tightness, can manifest in immobility. And that, that, that tightness feeling in order to prevent them from going into a range of motion that they could potentially hurt themselves in. So it's more of a defensive mechanism. And like, we're, we, we should be happy that our brain is doing that, but then obviously it has these negative detrimental side effects. And if you actually watch all those guys squat in the beginning, Nick, I know you notice this too, not one of them would get below 90 degrees. Yeah. Why? Because well, they are using all the flexion out of the hip, essentially just sitting into the heels sure. and then flexing through the lumbar spine. And at that point, you've taken up all your range of motion. You yeah. can't create any torque and rotation. You're going to stop there every single time. And what's amazing is when we got them into a position where their toes are forward, big toes in the ground, you know, more centered over the midfoot, knee came forward, getting them to drive their knees out, you know, actually teaching them that neutral hip, you know, good arrangement. Everything was, uh, you know, stacking in such a way. Instantly, everybody hit depth and squatted so much. Like it was to the point where they were like, can we do another squat? It's never, uh, or another set. It's never felt this good. Yeah. It's never been this easy. Well, in when we started having the conversation with them about how they were squatting, you know, where, where they were training before, uh, you know, with the Hatfields, the way that they were doing them with the arms straight, they're effectively taking the flexibility out of the ankle. Mm -hmm. So if you eliminate that and it shows up everywhere else within their training, right? So as we went into the speed work, uh, the ankle motion was a major limitation. Well, limitations for all. So we can get this out to a general perspective and, going back to the old CrossFit football seminar and why we default to toes forward. Man, that was the best. Going I to, loved it. Yes, going to the battle, people didn't understand when we then told them the purpose of setting up with our toes out to work around hip, flex, hip inflexibility, not loading the posterior chain as much, right? So we were able to now introduce purpose into this. This is a specific setup. All right, well, you as an individual need this direction where John gave some knees out to not everybody, but the guys that needed it that allowed them to then get lower. Sure. So uh, I guess introduce this, Matt and Nick, no one way to do things. 
we can change setups to then target different pieces. It's not a squat is a squat, period. No, 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 no. Setup changes things that in terms of activation, execution, and purpose. Yeah, it, it depends what uh, the intention is behind, like we said, with the movement. And then you couple that with their um, specific anthropometrics, so the way that they're built and their functional limitations, then we can start to tailor exactly Anyone's. what they need. Anyone's. Just, Anyone's. Yep. Not Anyone's. our guys. Anyone. No, well, I mean, um, what's cool about the group we worked with is, uh, you know, I mean, I think that their movement characteristics are a function of their job, but nothing that they did was not characteristic of the population we look at. I mean, we had the opportunity to teach hundreds of seminars and train thousands of people across at football to the point where we go in, we still could use the system to evaluate these guys. There were just unique patterns to them because of their job that were, you know, you know that were just very connected with those individuals. And, uh, you know, but then also the model still fits. And, uh, you know, we typically see, you know, people with poor dorsiflexion and that doesn't, I mean, you can hide it in the squat, but when all of a sudden you get in, you start doing the sprint stuff, and especially a lot of the ankling, a lot of the things that we do within that warmups, it becomes super, like, fucking bright to see. And that's that's what I love about the toes forward is it gives them a set point, like a center point to come back to each and every time. But then what we did the rest of the week too was, okay, here's the different ends of the spectrums that we can start to explore. Sure. Getting into all those, all those dark zones, John. There are dark corners. <laughs> dark corners, <laughs> dark holes. Yeah. <laughs> Like, like, like yeah. that, like that door, like the dark corner at a bar. You're like, what's going on over there? There's, you never a, lot know. Of, there's a lot of smoke and I see a lot of shoes. There's you never so know many arm holes, holes in the bathroom stalls. <laughs> yeah. Explorers. Ah, uh, dude, we did look over and uh, see guys arm wrestling, which was pretty hilarious. Just randomly arm wrestling. I mean, your two PTs here arm wrestled. How did not uh, each other? Uh, we do that on our own time. Some guy, <laughs> uh, some guy showed up and totally trucked him. Just yeah. like, just some guy was like, Hey, I'll jump in on the arm wrestling and then murder these guys. And then they like, Dude, he hustled him. He, oh, it was, he played it, it off. It, it he played bad. it off like he didn't know what he was doing, and then it was just like stone cold face him the entire time. Didn't was, break was, his there, was there money involved? He there bet a Rolex on yeah, it. Yeah, he had his. <laughs> Dude was rocking a Rolex, and, yeah. and he he put the Rolex up. And he was like, "Yeah, okay." He's like, "You buy me a drink, or you can have my Rolex." And you could tell he does this a lot too, because he wore that big baggy button-down shirt, like a 25-year-old kid. And the minute he got set into position, you could see the biceps just start to swell up and push out. And they're like, "Oh man, he's he's fucked now. He's not going to win this one." Yeah, you got to have a little bit of uh, arm wrestling background to like roll into <laughs> bars and just start fucking challenging dudes to arm wrestling in the back of a bar, like on some random picnic table. It's a great skill to have. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> so going back to exploration yeah, in his dark corners. Um, it, it was cool because we had this toes forward squat to bring them back to as that set point, the center point. But then we explored these different ranges of motion, these different patterns that taught them what the end, the different ends of the spectrum looked like. But then, then they could always come back to that center because the, the body is like constantly adapting. The brain's constantly adapting with the nervous system. It's like a pendulum swinging back and forth. And the way we described it to them is if you stay stuck in that, like that one position where you only use the same movement patterns, kind of going back to routine here, mm -hmm. you're only going to have a little bit of uh, mobility available to you. And, and like the way I define mobility is not range of motion. It's not flexibility. It's movement options. Mm -hmm. How many movement options do you have? Uh, and by exposing them to these different ends of spectrums, you create it more bandwidth. You create it more of a, like an arc for that pendulum to swing. So now the nervous system and the, and the, and the brain and the body is super happy because it knows it can access a wider breadth of movement 
and then it will always be able to come back and find that center as it organizes itself, as the as its like resting position, what it prefers the most. That makes sense. I think that you know, uh, the, especially with the toes forward discussion and whatnot, like using that as a reference point for where am I at right mm -hmm. now, and using that as a self check model. Um, but understanding that you know, we were talking about this this morning, Matt. Um, you know, if somebody is regularly working, training uh, every six months, their body is going to be adapting, and their squat. Like if you look six months back their squat mechanism is going to look different than it did six months prior because their body is changing and adapting to the stimulus. And so therefore there should be a reference point, but also understanding where can you deviate? Where is it, you know, safe and reasonable and, and, uh, and useful to deviate from that set point and, and using that as the reference model. Yeah. And, and that's kind of like what I love about this. Um, we have this reference point at the set point, but then we're going to explore more because it comes back um, to what I talked about with the guys with that Fitz law, where there isn't like an inverse relationship between speed and accuracy. Mm -hmm. So the faster you move, the less accurate your movement is going to be because the brain can't create such a clear picture of that movement pattern. Mm -hmm. And that's why we do this training. We're doing this training to expose them to as many different patterns and positions and uh, postures as possible, right? And then create that range of motion through load and force, something that's actually usable by the brain so should they get stuck into ranges of motion that they're not used to going into, okay, they can come out of it unscathed because then they do have more movement options available to them. And at the end of the day, your static flexibility, like your, the static range of motion that you have available to you is going to be the limiting factor of your dynamic range of motion, your dynamic flexibility, your dynamic movement. So to be able to put them in these loaded positions and take them through what kind of full range of motion they have available to them and have them work there, the body will then start to, the brain will start to then expand through this adaptation process, like Nick said, and over six months, eight months, a year, you're going to see these adaptations take place. Because at the end of the day, it takes like eight to 12 months to change over connective tissue in the body. And this is where, you know, you have to come back to, to having like um, the grit to stay in it mm -hmm. and to have uh, like a, like a long-term thought process with this thing as well. And then with that, you'll see these adaptations take place. And it's almost like a snowball effect. Because then I think it, it builds a lot of, of confidence and buy-in uh, into the program because now they're moving better, they're feeling better, and their performance is enhanced. Hmm. Awesome. What was cool was um, there were guys at this event that had uh, done the event two years ago. Mm -hmm. So it was neat to see the tests and the retests and actually see people that had taken things that we had done two years ago and then, you know, kind of adapted it and almost given this refresher. That was neat. Nick, I think you should tell the story of the, the belt squat guy because that was probably the, the coolest one. His, well, his verbal takeaway? Well, his verbal takeaway was essentially <laughs> fuck foam rollers. That's, that's all he took away from well, but, well, well, last night, uh, I guess years ago, I was asked to come speak to some, to, to some students in SQT. And uh, I guess in this 30-minute talk, I was talking about sleep and performance. And I made, the, I made the interesting observation, which I don't even remember making, that the most meaningful sleep is between 10 and 2. So, like, for example, if you go to bed before 10, uh, like, that, that four-hour block is, is more meaningful than if you were to go to bed at, like, 2 and then sleep. So, like, if you went to bed at 10 and you woke up at 6, opposed from, like, going to bed at 2.30 and waking up at noon kind of a deal. And uh, those guys somehow misconstrued that to mean the only sleep they need was between 10 and 2 so that they should get up and start partying. And then, like, if they're going to, like, go out and rock it, like, go out at 2.01. And like they were like kicking this back to me, and I'm like, man, I don't think I would have said it that way. 
There were like and, six guys that confirmed the and then story. They, and then they all confirmed it. And I'm like, well, first of all, you guys are rockheads. Second of all, uh, if I said that, it fucking sounds great. Like, uh, you, guys only, you guys only need four hours of sleep. And if you're going to go out drinking, make sure you start at 201, not, not 1001. And uh, it was funny. So, uh, and I'm positive I wouldn't have said that. Um, but Clearly you did. Uh, but I think it was yeah, the, the uh, how, how they took it. Right, it was, it was yeah. the impact well, how it landed, well, how they in the, well, the information. Well, the way that I delivered it probably made sense to me. Didn't make sense to any of them. <laughs> and then here they all, all these years later, they were like, hey, when we were at SQT, you came in and you said this. And then they just all fucking chimed on me. And I was like, God damn it. You became the 10 to 2 guy. Yeah. Yeah. And what's wild is they called it. They're like, hey, man, I got to go home and get my 10 to 2. And so <laughs> it was like it, it was like a joke for Beach them. Beach back here in four hours. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, whoa, 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 whoa dude, I got to go sleep. I got to get my 10 to 2. So like they've actually held on to it for all these years. Oh, oh shit, man. and uh, and I was like, and then you guys just waited till we went out to tell me all that. Like they like we went to dinner at the Salt Lake or lunch, and they were killing me with that. And I'm like, you waited all this time to fucking ride me on this. And it was like, awesome. Yeah, yeah, I was like, I appreciate. <laughs> I like so for me, uh, like in a situation like that, I would have like made that my very first question, just so I could get it out of the way. Those guys waited five days to oh, hit yeah. me on that. Which, yeah, it was building. Yeah, no, there's, it was awesome. Great patience. Great patience. So, yeah, our guy, uh, one of the guys that came this time that was at the prior, uh, when we when we had worked with him before, um, he was dealing with about three years of recurrent and chronic issues for the low back, low back pain. And, uh, you know, that, that that was his takeaway, right? Fuck mm -hmm. foam rollers. The, the gist uh, of it was he week. was... Did, did you actually say that? I think you said we, that foam rolling is not going to remodel tissue that's the way it, you We gave the exact explanation yes. that I just yeah, and delivered. I, yeah, and I remember you saying that, and they somehow got, yeah, fuck foam rollers. Up. All together. Yeah, that, was, that was it. Throw them out. But, uh, so now the yeah. 10 to 2 makes sense. <laughs> there's a, there's the, a developing pattern here. Yeah. 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 But, uh, you know, he, he basically, like, he was going through kind of a the real basic rudimentary stuff, which was adding movements into his system. So he was like talking about doing ball squeezes with wall squats and, and, and all these little like workaround movements that they were trying to give him to develop strength in his glutes and whatnot. And meanwhile, he's got a huge ass, right? Like great golfer, great golfer, huge ass, <laughs> great golfer, goofy shirt last night too. Um, but basically what we did was uh, we said, hey, let's hold off of all the extraneous mobility stuff. Let's eliminate some of the, the basic things you've been doing and let's, let's go ahead and take a look at your squat. And he's like, well, I can't squat because my back hurts. Yep. They had those Kaiser squats there. Yep. And so I remember whenever we were doing, uh, we had lunchtime lunch on the Kaisers. The, and, but, but also we used uh, the Bell Shark. Well, yeah, yeah. Or we shark. Pit shark. We, pit we shark. put him into the Pit Shark for corrective, but yep. it showed up. We had lunch one day while we were there. And uh, the, the four of us seemed to get into some kind of a contest uh, with the Kaiser squats. And yeah. so like we ended up taking all the guys yeah. and lined them up and had them do that. Yeah. And he showed that that major fault because whenever he was loaded and he dropped into the bottom in order to come out, he would shoot his hips up and then hinge like a like a forklift. But all that hinge movement was coming out of the low back. He's like, yeah, this is driving my back crazy. I was like, it hurts my back to watch you. So let's, <laughs> let's, uh, let's start correcting this. So like what we did was basically um, we gave him some loaded movement options, things that were going to be significant to his nervous system. Uh, very specifically, I gave him a... Uh, extremely wide sumo stance RDL with toes forward. And then we put him into the, into the belt squat, pit shark. Uh, and then basically just some other real foundational kind of stuff. And he switched into Johnny Wad 
in uh, cycle Johnny Wad and Johnny Bod and stopped all the excessive mobilization, stopped all the really rudimentary things and started actually paying attention to his movement patterns. And he was just like, it, it, this time he told us, he's like, I am fully bought in. He went three years in low back pain and basically we turned that chip in about a week and then he had several months of work to do thereafter, but he was able to function and see the connections. And so instead of I've got an hour of PT work, then I got to do an hour of mobility to be ready to go squat, then I can maybe get my squat in and then, you know, all that stuff. He integrated all of that right within, you know, our power athlete programs. So uh, what's kind of interesting for you guys, and uh, what I love is like I always imagined uh, some of the PT stuff was um, like recurring revenue model, almost like I thought that sometimes like the PTs like put you in this stuff so that like it's job security. And so what I think is interesting is that like all of a sudden you put him in this like, uh, hey, use this model. We're going to do it this way. And now all of a sudden he like doesn't know, doesn't need to go to the PT. He can almost like, you know, get strong on his own. He's changing the pattern. So what I find what's interesting with you guys is the idea instead of being like, hey, I'm going to like continually to like rehab these guys and do all this stuff that they're going to have to come to me for, for this injury, which is, you know, recurring revenue, job security. You guys are like, there's plenty of people that are fucked up. We don't have time to work yeah. with this. So now you can fix yourself. It creates this like weird codependency relationship between the provider and the client too. Or like you're, you're, you need each other to survive. Like the, the but you guys don't take that approach. We don't take that approach. No, that, that's a standard no. PT I, approach. You're I talking think that's about. why I like yeah. you guys because <laughs> honestly, like I've always said that Kairos and uh, I, I've met some incredible Kairos like Dr. Bueller, uh, you know, fucking Dr. Bob, uh, who I go see. Um, you know, uh, uh, my buddy, Tony Harp, who's a neurosity guy, mm -hmm. like I've, you know, and there's a, a, you know, a couple other dudes that I've met that are like really good at what they do. But I think the reason I like you guys is cause you're not stuck in this, like, well, I see STEM, uh, you know, this, like, you know, all the modalities where that like, didn't work. People, let's do it again. Yeah. yeah. Let's do it again. And now I got to teach you corrective exercises. Oh, the yeah. corrective exercises aren't working. Now let me give you more corrective exercises and new ones in this. And there's like this never ending cycle. When really it just comes down to at least what I've always abused in PT clinic, which is these people just look really weak mm -hmm. and they would probably fix a lot of this dysfunction if they were just stronger. But yeah. yet the PTs don't, one, they don't have barbells, they don't have weights and they really don't, uh, don't, you know, do that. Um, uh, Dr. Schaefer, who's uh, the guy that we used to go see in Costa Mesa actually has a gym in the back of his, uh, uh, clinic. And like, there's a whole bunch of stuff where he'll be like, work on stuff. Like, hey, let's go in the back and see what you can do. And he would take people back there. And I mean, he was a Olympic lifter, snatch clean and jerk and would, you know, hey, show me a press of barbell. This would be a lot easier if you were stronger. And he's the only guy I've really run into like that. My breaking point whenever I was in kind of a traditional clinical model, you know, I, I always wanted to practice in the same way. And I, I, I want to treat other people the way that I would want to be treated. If it's something simplistic and you don't need me, why would I want to keep coming in here and keep doing this over and over and over? Because you got bills to pay. Well, yeah. And I'm going to need some but, new shoes. But I, I, I would not want to be treated that way. So I don't treat other people that way. But the breaking point to me was I had a dude who was um, a fairly high-level CrossFit athlete. And uh, he can pull about 650, so he could deadlift right around there. And he came in with this really horrible back pain. And the heaviest thing I had in the clinic was a 35-pound kettlebell. And I'm like, <laughs> what am I supposed to do with this? And so, like, um, that was kind of a, a moment where I was like, all right, I'm done. That's it. And so whenever I created my model, my clinic, you know, that was the first thing we did was make sure we have heavyweight barbells and lots of options. Yeah, no, and I think, like, another point to that too, John, is that 
Uh, like our main goal, like when Nick and I are working with people, whether it be in person or remotely through programming, it's about creating autonomy, mm-hmm. right? We want to put the ball in their court and create responsibility. And I think what's, you know, kind of sets us apart from that standard of care PT stuff that you just got done talking about is this idea of education, right? We're not just giving them stuff and say, hey, you know, trust in me as your like dogmatic teacher. It is we are giving them education to help them understand more about what's going on inside their body so that they can learn and triage and self-assess along the way. And in doing so, like, you know, we, we talked about, we gave these guys a big pain lecture uh, yesterday too, which I know no, Nick, I, Nick gets all <laughs> excited about. Um, well, I, but no, I it, mean, it, uh, uh, yeah, and I, I know you're going to reference it, yeah. but I want to come back and actually talk a little bit more about that, uh, about the pain lecture and sure. like, you know, the idea behind it and the pain neural matrix and all that. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So um, through this education piece, what it does is it calms down the, the, the stress response, it calms down the fear, it calms down the anxiety inside the brain. And we know through research that that actually does lower your pain sensitivity. It helps it decrease, right? And then when that lowers, we can then move better. And once again, it's that, it's that compounding effect that we're searching for. The neuromatrix theory is is really fascinating. And we truly can integrate all of that back into um you know, the, the idea behind what we're doing here with programs, right? So every input yields an output. And so that neuromatrix theory is biopsychosocial, biological tissues, what that signal goes to the brain, how it's prioritized, psychological. So what is my uh, perceived or believed uh, response, uh, expectation for uh, an input? And then socially, what is going on around me that is creating another input into that system? And so then it gets categorized in, into this hierarchy. The reality is, again, everything comes down to the nervous system. So how we integrate, how we change the body with pain response is simply by changing those stimuli going to the brain. Mm-hmm. So whether that's through you know the education, understanding, psychological issues, right, psychological component to pain, um, and, and being able to provide some context to people, that oftentimes will start to decrease some of that pain response. There's a, a study done several years ago um, that showed uh, prior to getting a hip replacement surgery, they took this group and split these people in half and, and half the people went and had the surgery then presented to a provider for rehab. The other half saw the provider before the surgery and were given pain science education. And they had a 65% reduction in overall perceived pain ratings following the surgery for those that had the education first. Understanding what it was, understanding what was gonna happen doesn't allow for your brain to create the narratives. And so therefore it helps to decrease that threat level that is associated with pain. So um, you know, understanding that and changing those inputs. And then again, with the biological piece of it, when we add a barbell onto our back, we overload the system, overload the musculature, it's providing a new input into the brain that can then be categorized and prioritized. What's interesting too is there's a, 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 like a really interesting cr- close relationship between pain and fear, mm-hmm. and uh, I sometimes think that like the 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 fear of being injured or maybe like the fear of this stuff ends up compounding and creating this like increased pain, and then pain is such an interesting thing because like you know you watch two people go through the exact same thing and one person's like I didn't even notice it another person was talking about how debilitating it is, so it's uh it's really fascinating and that idea of fear just kind of like has always kind of been present when I see people that are really in a lot of pain I always wonder like what's the fear aspect like what are they afraid of instead of like you know like the one thing I do love about Matt is I know we bust a lot of jokes in the dark corners and all that and like (laughs) I mean we just like make a ton of like 
I mean, kind of funny, inappropriate stuff, but because we've known each other so long, it's uh, nobody's offended by anything. Nobody gets which is, Yeah, no. Yeah. And I, but the thing I love is you lean in on it. Oh hell yeah! And I fucking <laughs> love that. Like I love when like something's fucking hilarious, and then you just fucking lean in on it. And you're like, like when those guys are getting me on ten and two, I should have been like, yeah, what the fuck are you talking about? You get, we should be in bed right now. You can wake up and drink at one, one two. I should have leaned in on it. They just totally caught me off guard. I was like, fuck, did I really say that? And then I started second guessing myself. And like normally, what I'll do is if something's like that, I'll just fucking lean in. And I, dude, you do a great job with it. I'm fucking okay. always, which makes me laugh. Self-deprecating humor is best. Ah, well, it is. Yeah. It is. hundred uh, uh, percent. Kelly Hinsman, by far one of the best uh, self-deprecating humors I've ever come across. Dude, so the, the, the fear and pain thing, bringing that back around, um, you know, pain is the response of the nervous system from the brain, you know, that creates signaling. And so fear is another one of those responses that is uh, brought about in that fight or flight state. Right. So um, sympathetic nervous system integration. And so if you see somebody who is experiencing a lot of pain, they're heavily sympathetic in nature. And I think chronic pain is basically an unregulated version of that upregulated system. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's inability to come out of a sympathetic state that will perpetuate those signaling processes. And so one of the things that we talked about was like that background noise, the background threshold associated with pains. Cause you know, we're all sitting in these chairs right now. We're all in this room. We have these inputs coming into the system, but it's relatively below our level of consciousness. And then when we go into this highly sympathetic state, those signals are boosted. They're, they're pushed up so that it takes a lower and lower threshold to be able to break through that barrier of consciousness. And so fear and pain are, they're going to live side by side because it is that sympathetic response. And, and Matt, you can speak to this too, but like mm -hmm. that upper chest breathing that you see with somebody who's in severe pain, right? They, they're going to be breathing up high. They're going to be, you know, uh, really short panicked breathing. And again, that pushes that, that uh, sympathetic response. Well, thanks for calling attention to us sitting here because I just realized my ass is numb now. Yeah. Um, Which well, is actually really now, funny. after this week, you, did, you did that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, now you can. It's taken it. such a beating. Uh, dude, that's why you notice like I'm constantly squeaking because for some reason my butt's a little too wide for these seats. And so I got to kind of like angle a cheek over here and I kind of constantly moving, yeah. which I'm sure Charles is like. Stop fucking squeaking, but I gotta like believe me, there's a lot of movement. So and how many chairs were broken this week? <laughs> <laughs> we got here, folks. Uh, oh. So <laughs> when we lived in Newport Beach, we had this bitch in mid-century house. And I bought these like cool plastic, clear mid-century things that have like uh, you know, what's a mid-century like the fifties? Uh fifties, like a sixties okay. Brady Bunch that like you I mean, you remember the house on Hampshire? How it like, you know, single story. Was, I don't know. Oh yeah, but, that's okay. that's like it. a classic Newport Beach uh, coastal uh, mid-century home, and yeah. it was actually not. It was built in that time period, so all those homes, huge, you know, um, front doors. You know, there's just a lot of like traits. So we had this like bitchin, uh, uh, actually the concrete table that's in there, and so I got these clear plastic chairs, and uh, <laughs> never had any real issues with them. And then when as the kids got older, I would sit in them and hold the kids. And the kids kind of lean back, and then I would lean back, and they would just snap. And so I snapped too. And then uh, we got new chairs, and I moved everything down here. And the other day, when uh, we were sitting there listening, I'm sitting in this chair, and um, Cassie the lead ass, my son is so fucking heavy. He eat like yesterday. He had uh, three ribs. He had a hamburger. Like he just like is like 150 grams of protein. He's a dense bowling ball, uh, dude. He uh, like so thick and so dense. And he's just like laying on me and I can feel the thing like, 
And I'm like sitting there and I'm like, I was, no, 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 this is true. I was actually in this fucking hollowed out flex position trying to counterbalance it because I was nervous about it breaking. And then it just fucking snapped. It's and like that Julianne Moore in Jurassic Park 2 and she's on the glass. Yeah. And it's just yeah. cracking. Waiting. And, and uh, uh, so as I go down, the thing snaps and like, of course, the thing shears totally scrapes my ass in the back of my leg, cuts the shit out of me. And as I'm laying there with him on my chest, I have a, like a terrible ab cramp because I've been flexing the whole time. And like you guys come over and I'm like, take the kid, take the kid. And you're, like, and you were like, you like, you're like yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was trying rock. I was like, just give it, just, just take the kid. And then like as you guys took the kid, everybody's laughing. I'm laying there. I'm like, my abs cramping. And I couldn't move for a oh, second. Oh my tummy. Oh dude. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding you. I, I have like fear of broken uh, three of those chairs and it's always leaves like a nasty fucking wound. And as I'm sitting in there, I got like these my kids. So it's so dense, so heavy. I told Kate, I'm like, I'm like, I broke another chair and I told her the story and she's like, She's like, we never broke them until the kids started sitting on your lap. She's like, why don't you just go sit in another chair? I'm like, ah, fucking these are all great questions that should be answered. But unfortunately, it didn't work out like that. Oh, man. Was that a shot at your identity at all, John? With what? <laughs> Breaking the chair. No, no embarrassment. Uh, no, not at all, dude. Like uh, <laughs> at this point in my life, if I can't laugh at myself and like the stupidity uh, of like ten and two and that type of stuff, like if I said that shit or the things that I've done and whatever, like uh, at this point, um, I think if my ego was so fragile that me breaking a chair and a bunch of dudes fucking ribbing me on it, mm -hmm. uh, like that's the fucking. Uh, fucking well, hammer to the wall no but you, you have a lot of mental resiliency right yeah. that, that there's but that's an interesting point bringing it back to the pain stuff too we're trying to bring this back around we're getting better at this all week nick uh it, it, it takes a shot at your identity sometimes and it could have a, a more detrimental negative effect for people who catastrophize yeah, it, right? and I overthink it and, and I'll, I'll tell you right now when dude, I, i'm also like 6'6 six, six, 275 well, yeah. pounds <laughs> so like uh like what are they going to do i'd be like oh you you've been broken a chair maybe when you're a full-grown adult you <laughs> <laughs> which is what i could say i'm like you oh you've never broken a chair well obviously you're you know fucking uh, a hobbit like yeah. uh believe me dude uh yeah. there is uh i've broken many a chair in my life mm -hmm. like those plastic ones where all of a sudden the legs would be like snap <laughs> And uh, it's just a function of being a big dude. And then when all of a sudden you put like my 60 pound five-year-old on top of me, it just compounded it. And the worst is he was like curled up, pl like playing whatever he's playing on his phone. And uh, which I hate that he has a phone, but unfortunately it's connected to his uh, Dexcom to CGM. Mm -hmm. And so he has to have it on him, which is fucking, uh, I wish these people could just have like a device. But uh, he's sitting there like all curled up, like playing it and just like totally waited on me. Like normally if he would have like sprawled out and kind of like spread the load, but no, no, like a rock. Yeah, right down. Those, those chairs aren't waited for you. Well, like uh, you. but like here's the deal. Like uh, I really think if you can't laugh at yourself and that's why I was saying, man, I was yeah. playing you a compliment. Mm -hmm. Like as we're fucking busting your balls and you just leaning in on it and going with it, which is <laughs> fucking hilarious. Because then everybody just kind of got uncomfortable, which was even funnier. And then you just went farther with it. <laughs> I fucking love that. I, I think if you can like take a joke like that, absorb it, and then like redirect it in such a way that takes it, like that's a fucking high level of uh, of uh, uh, emotional. You, you intelligence. know that that's one of my uh, my life goals to make people as uncomfortable as possible. And Nick and I have we, we have, have a very long standing <laughs> friendship. I think I think I, I think we're that, friends. I think we are we are on our ten year anniversary, my friend. So th this is this is actually well timed. Um, but I think Nick and I have one of the longest standing jokes, internal jokes. 
Yeah, that kicked off like day one, day one. moment one. So I, I walked into I walked into a course Matt and I both took, mm-hmm. and that's what really started the relationship. I, I looked across the room and like scanning the room, I was like, okay, where am I going to sit down? And I see this dude with this super douchey haircut, rocking the Lululemons like a track jacket and no bull shoes. And I was like, that's my boy. And so I went, <laughs> well, what I like the fact is, uh, as his hair grows longer, so your so is your beard growing longer. And thank God you don't have that beard anymore because that was really <laughs> oh. it was very like, Joe Dirt. Well, uh, here's the thing: oh, like Nick has a fucking great beard. Great, like yeah. if he did not trim it, that thing would grow right under his eyes. Which <laughs> I think. And then maybe it would eventually wrap if, up and cover. If his you're hair. if you're gonna have a fucking beard, have like a legit. Oh, Charles is the same thing. Yeah. He's like a Wolfman beard. Like Real you, thick. Like you got the thick yeah. ones. And you know what? That's cool as shit. If you're going to have it, like have a thick beard. Matt and I, not blessed with good beards. And you know what? Like I saw your beard and I'm like, my beard sucks because it's got a big hole here. It's kind of patchy and it's just sucks. So, I, dude, I, I commend you. You guys got good beards. You know, you know, I, I think that your exact analogy was the, the gay pirate from Princess Bride. Uh, no, it was actually, um, they, so they made a movie years ago and which is fucking hilarious in this present culture. And it was with, uh, fuck, it was Zorro, the gay, blade. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Right. It was called Zorro, the gay, blade. <laughs> and it was, it was a movie, right uh, it, and, uh, God, it, I, um, <laughs> I can't, re- uh, if you, as soon as you say the, I, I can see his face. 1981. And, uh, the actor was the guy that played it. He was Zorro, and he had a gay brother who was also a gay Zorro, who wore pink. <laughs> and it was Zorro, the gay blade. Uh, George, George Hamilton. Hamilton. Yeah, George Hamilton yeah, played this. And it was, we saw it, like, I, I mean, dude, it came out, like, what, what would it say, 81? So I was, you know, four or five years old. And I saw it when I was their age, and we thought it was hysterical. Like we were like, yeah. And, uh, and like, that was like, they legitimately made a movie. Like, I mean, I, I bet you, you can't even find it anywhere. They probably fucking burned it just for the fact that it was in there. But yeah, that was, uh, that was kind of our joke was like, uh, Oh, like, uh, like the gay Zorro. Oh, that guy's like the gay Zorro. We go to San Francisco and be like, man, there's a lot of Zorros around here. I'm extremely popular up there, by the way. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. believe it. Um, yeah. So it's, it's interesting. Cause like Nick and I are essentially like the yin and the yin and yang here. I got all the hair up top. He's got all the hair down below. Uh, down below, meaning his face. Um, and and, and beard, he has a lot shaved. of like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everything shaved. Ar- Arnie Palmies. God, that is the that scene in the other guys is so weird. I love it. Chris Dip, you're gonna come in here. Oh man, it's so weird. Uh, but he also has like a whole bunch of like Sailor Eddie. Uh, or yeah, yeah, Sailor Eddie, um, or no, uh, uh, Eddie from uh, Philadelphia, Eddie, Philadelphia, yeah, yeah, South, yeah, yeah, South Street, Eddie's tattoo stuff. You have all this like new wave hippie shit. You got like a little like wave right there on your wrist. I'm sure you probably have like a rib tat with like maybe like an inspirational quote somewhere. That, that's coming next. Ah, that's okay. January one, John. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a giant target on my leg. What's, <laughs> what's the quote uh, for what your the tattoo. next tattoo? Uh, not, I haven't thought of it yet. I haven't thought of it yet. Not not all of those who wander are lost. Or just arrows, like wanderlust. <laughs> wanderlust. Yeah, that'd be good. One. Yeah, well, it's because so. it, I'm joking. It's so he he got the arrow to uh, um, to commemorate his Na- uh, Navajo heritage, and then he got his genealogy done and found out he is no American Indian. He's just a hoe. Yeah, which was a true story. Maybe that'll be just a hoe. 
Yeah, down my ribs. Just, just <sighs> that would be a good one. Uh, good. Dude, we did see some really good tattoos this week. Sure, man. Uh, we saw some really fun, like interesting ones where I was like, man, there's got to be a weird story behind that one. Oh yeah, yeah. For every every uh, interesting looking tattoo on a dude like what we worked with this week, there is there is a story behind it, and, and sometimes they're kind of benign, but like there's a story. Yeah, like hey, I went in and I just wanted some flash, and I picked this. And like, uh, I think the one guy made a joke about the Godsmack son. And then I looked and I think he had a Godsmack son. <laughs> he had a black son. And I was like, okay, I guess I made a joke about the Godsmack son. My buddy RC to this day, when we went, years ago, we went to go see a, a band. And I think uh, that opened and then we met the guys from Godsmack. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is actually when they were like kind of cool, like early 2000s-ish. Maybe, maybe they were never cool, but we went to go see their show. And uh, we met their lead singer, Sully, who was like this big. He, he actually stood up on a picnic table to talk to me because he told me uh, that I made him feel insecure being so tall. And uh, my buddy RC was a tattoo artist, uh, actually apprenticed with uh, um, Eddie on South Street. And RC's uh, tattoo is pretty famous. Uh, he was like, hey, man, music's not bad, but I fucking hate the fact that I've had to tattoo your fucking logo on this many people. He goes, dude, I've done around belly buttons, backs. He's like, fuck. He goes, he goes, I see that that album cover walk in or CD. I just fucking throw them out now. Yeah. Yeah. That in itself should be some form of like litmus test for people. Like, <laughs> you know, there needs to be something on like an IQ test somewhere or something like that. Like, you know, top question. Do you or do you not have a Godsmack tattoo? So uh, I told, I don't know if I told this on the podcast recently or maybe who I was telling it. But um, oh, I think I was telling it at the, the seminar. That when I was 14 years old, freshman in high school, I had an art class. And there was a dude who was like, we sat at these kind of big, like, big tables. And there was four people at each table. And the guy across from me was a senior. Right? I tell you, like, how, uh, you know, and I think he was taking this, like, opening freshman art class, like, the sixth time. And uh, he was, like, like, uh, like, used to, like, wear, like, a jean jacket that had, like, uh, um, Megadeth. And he just, he, he's, like, total, total Hesher metal dude. And uh, his favorite band was Queensryche. And he had a Queen's Reich tattoo. And like he, uh, like we would do all the Iron Maiden Eddie stuff. And like, you know, that was like, we, we could trace it. And then uh, actually, I think I did like traced it on a piece of mirror and actually did sandblasting of Eddie coming out of the ground. Mm-hmm. So like cool shit. But I remember the guy being like, best rock band in the world. You're going to crush it for the next 30 years. Fucking Queen's Reich. And he had this Queen's Reich tattoo. And I remember like, uh, highly yeah, invested uh, silent lucidity yeah it's a good song like am i gonna say that queen's reich is like the fucking most you know the metallica you know like longevity where like 30 years later they're still fucking crushing it and uh the guy was he he went all in and back to queen's reich and i always think like where is that dude now and he's like this sure queen's reich he's just going to indian, uh, indian casinos just hoping the guy queen's reich shows up and plays they're like, oh, our fucking fan is here in the front row. Guy's <laughs> like 50 years old, just talking about Queen's Reich. That was the fan club. Yeah, my <laughs> college roommate, while we we're still in college, we went with him to go get his first tattoo. So he went for a sublime, you know, the sublime son? Yeah. So yes. we were giving him shit like, oh, dude. That was gonna... the evolution. There was a Godsmack <laughs> son, or maybe there was a sublime son, and people just completely confused him. But that's, or, and then yeah. there was also like the, uh, Black Hole Sun for Chris Cornell for audio or um, Soundgarden. Soundgarden. Yeah. yeah. So Scotty's getting this tattoo, and we're we're giving him shit like, dude, Green Day sucks. We're well aware. <laughs> <of> the <laughs> but the best, the best thing was the tattoo artist. So it's on his back, left shoulder, 
he finishes the just the outline. He had to get it colored later on, but finishes the outline, and then the tattoo artist sits back. And we're all like hanging out drinking because the tattoo parlors it's either on the bottom or below a bar, uh, or on top of a bar. So we're all hanging and sitting back, and he he sits back after he's done. He's like, man. That's the best dolphin I've ever done. Scott <laughs> <laughs> loses his shit. Like, this is face down, and like, we, yeah. we gotta just hold him back a little bit. But like, I had a dog chasing his tail. It's fucking hilarious. <laughs> so, nice. still give him shit on that. Nice. nice. So, how did we get here? <laughs> uh, we uh, took, dark, we're exploring dark, dark holes. Corners. Yeah, dark, dark corners. Holes. But yeah, no, it's yeah. all about a, a Queen's right tattoo. God damn it, dude. That was, uh, uh, for, like, the fact that that was, what, 30 years ago? And I remember it like it was yesterday. And even at 14 years old, I was like, this guy's fucking, he's going to regret this. He's bagging groceries at a Kroger somewhere. And he's just like, yeah, man, I'm just waiting for the comeback. <laughs> he's been waiting 30 years for the Queen's right comeback. Oh, my God, dude. I mean, uh, if he had had a Metallica tattoo, I could have been like, all right, I'll, I, I get it. Like, if, because uh, I've, I've seen, um, what was the uh, the uh, the Doris uh, Lady Liberty? Yeah, uh, the Justice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Blind yeah. Justice. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've seen that for was that on uh, was Justice it? for All? Justice for All. It wasn't Kill 'Em All. I mean, uh, have you seen the original cover of Kill 'Em All? Yeah, it was Metal Up Your Ass. Metal Up Your Ass. Yeah, with the with toilet. The toilet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. how we knew it when we originally got it. Was Metal Up Your Ass? They went and changed it. Yeah. Uh, but I've seen that tattoo of the uh, what'd you call it? Doris. Dor- I think I think it's what they is that her name? I think so. I'm yeah, almost certain. Lady, that. Well, whatever it is. Lady like, Justice. Yeah, Lady Justice, Justice with the scales of the blind. And like I've seen that tattoo more than uh, like more than I should. Like, yeah. uh, and, and it's a good tattoo. Yeah, that and then uh Led Zeppelin, the uh um, Icarus tattoo. Yes. I've seen a lot of those. You know, what was real big in the NFL was always the praying hands. The, oh, bro- yeah. the brothers always had the praying hands. Have you ever seen a good set of praying hands done? Uh, one time. Yeah. It's a rare animal. It's like a unicorn. Some people claim to have seen it, but it's probably not real. Uh, I've only ever seen it on the internet. Like, uh, they're, like, like I, I think I showed you uh, that tattoo artist at Junka. Yeah. Uh, J-U-N-C-H-A. Mm-hmm. Like, does the most insane black and gray stuff. I think he has one set of praying hands. And, like, that's the one dude in the world that could do that. Yeah. Like, that, and, I mean, it's all black and gray. It's so smooth. But I remember, like... Everybody got that, and then they would get the rosary around the hand, and they started adding rings, and then it just looked like fucking dog shit. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, but and it was always had something of like, only God will judge me, and there was always like some like saying and words, and just like, just is that on. like is that is that the early form of Instagram? What tattoos? Yeah, like oh. everybody's got the praying hand tattoo with a quote. Like they're just doing that on on social media now. Yeah, I um man, uh, what was wild is uh, I played with um uh, a, a lot of black dudes that had a gang of tattoos, and they were super dark to the point where like you really couldn't see them, and uh, like in the like maybe in the winter, like you know obviously like you know skin lightens a little bit, you could see them like oh shit, but like coming out of training camp where it's super hot, dude, I couldn't see anything. And I just remember thinking like, man, that's a lot of time and pain. And, and money uh, and money yeah. to go through something that like you really just can't see that well. I mean, Trey Thomas had some really epic shit and just being like, fuck, man. And they'd always joke like, man, if only I was two shades lighter, this would look fucking dope. <laughs> and uh, but yeah, they just it, I mean, just or, you know, kind of like the blade stuff where all of a sudden you're like, holy shit, you know, but Wesley Snipes. Yeah. So, yeah, poor guy. So it, uh, all in all, I think it was 
Uh, I know it was a it was a kick ass event, and I think what's cool for us is because we do so much stuff here. You know, not only podcasts, and then you know, block ones, and we just have the you know coaches collective, and then to do something like this is really neat to take all this information we've been doing and actually be able to go and present and see it in real time. I mean, we got to see instant feedback teaching across the football seminar for years, and uh, it's neat too to have five really long days where we can do so much opposed from just showing up on a Saturday and Sunday and just fucking fire hosing people in the face. So it gave us a chance to really like go through movements, revisit things, talk about things, try it again and show them different variations of a lot of stuff. So it's, uh, I mean, it's it, like, I, I was very um, grateful to have five days and not feel like we were so fucking rushed to cram all this stuff in. And, you know, it was really cool uh, for me because, you know, Nick and I have been doing this for quite a while now and together we have a great dynamic when we teach and all that, but it was even cooler to have you guys involved because we were all saying similar things from different lenses and different perspectives. And those common themes were like pulling and playing from each other throughout each one of our own presentations. And it was great to help them tie that together together because then they it kind of solidified it, I think, in your in your brain because you know what, what we presented in these five days like drinking from a fucking fire hose, I think. But they were able to take away the, these common themes, these common threads to then go back home and be able to implement it in their training. And use it effectively. Yeah, and then what's cool is because of Train Heroic, we have this portal to be able to provide training mm-hmm. and then also feedback and coach in real time. So it's neat to like, uh, you know, have these guys have experience doing the training, show up, you know, buff and shine, you know, make sure all the lug nuts are tight, fix a bunch of stuff, then send them back out, but yet still have that connection. Yeah, and, and then uh, fine tune it along the way. Oh yeah, no, yeah. it's cool, man. I um, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for it. That's uh, and and what just a cool group of individuals. I mean. Really good shit talkers, which I um, really fucking love shit talking. I don't was, think anybody so caps your daughter, though. Uh, Jamie is, uh, she'll fucking land some blows on you. Um, and the thing I'm laughing <laughs> is she's she's already five, like she's as tall as my wife. So uh, she's like, she's catching her. She's just about five feet. She's actually wearing my wife's shoes, which my wife's stoked on. because She's like, hey, can you buy Jamie's shoes? And when she outgrows them, I'm going to get them. Uh, but, you know, like you're, you're 10. And uh, I'm like, dude, she's going to be like six feet tall. Which is going to be hilarious if she's just going to be just belittling people. And I constantly tell her, I'm like, you're going to have to learn to fight. Somebody's just going to punch you in the face for talking shit like this. She's like, bring it. I'll take it. I'm like, oh, God. I thought it was great when we were out to dinner that one night with a, a few of the guys. And we're all getting ready to leave. And John's paying the bill. So thank you for the, the yeah. dinner, John. And <laughs> your daughter stands up and is like, he's the only man here. <laughs> <laughs> like saying that to a bunch of, a bunch uh, of those guys and us. I'm like, it's you, funny. you got it. Yeah, well, uh, I, I am more than happy to take you guys out to dinner. Yeah. yeah, I have fun taking you guys out to dinner. And you guys stayed in Texas, so technically I didn't have to pay for hotel rooms, so we might as well just go out and have a bunch of fucking dope meals. Yeah, and Nick and I were very cozy in that one bed together, too. Yeah, I thought it was really weird. Tex has like six bedrooms, and some reason we had to be in the one room with a twin bed. Twin, yeah, yeah. but we pushed it together. Well, There's the weird two part, too, is together. I tried to book you guys at hotels, and you wouldn't have it. He put his foot down, and he's like, no. We're going to have a sleepover. I got pillows and blankets. We're going to make forts. It's going to be great. It was pretty epic. Don't take this from me. (laughs) (laughs) There were plenty of pillow fights, too. (laughs) We had a taxi. He doesn't know what to say. He's like, (laughs) yeah, two dudes just wandering around in ranger panties in my home. I didn't expect that ever. Wait, you didn't expect that? that? Ever. I don't know. (laughs) You don't think about those things when you're buying a home. Like, oh, man, we could fit a lot of dudes in here in ranger panties. (laughs) That was just a nice little bonus. (laughs) (laughs) Call that uh, the gift that keeps on giving. Well, I mean, you cruise around a smoking jacket, don't you? 
Yeah, I, well, I had, I had to, like a pipe, a smoking jacket, slippers. Uh, and I like had a, to, to tame my wardrobe. I had to, to wear pants past six p.m. So. <laughs> you just instantly just go in and pantless, just t-shirt on, no pants. Just as soon as I walk in the door, oh. just Winnie the Pooh in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking weird. <laughs> I, I see like dudes like shirts on and just underwear. You're like, are those fucking mantis? Are you wearing fucking tidy whities and a t-shirt? That's fucking weird. Very underrated, but Harold and Kumar too. You seen that? Ah, uh, yes. I, I don't remember it. Uh, <laughs> when they went to the uh, the party with the the chicks with the no pants. Yeah, the guy. They go to get some help from an old college pal who's now like a billionaire. But they show up and he's in a hot tub and t-shirt, and then hot tub two women in their bikini tops, and then he just stands up and it's just like. Full on. He's yeah. pantsless. And he's like, yeah, topless parties are out. Pantsless parties. It's a new thing because he's some big tech billionaire. Yeah. And uh, just hilarious. Yeah. I had yeah. to get fit a movie in here at some point. Well, that was a common theme throughout the week, too, is shoes and socks off, pants optional. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was also amazed that regardless of the weather, how quick dudes were to pop the top. I'm like, it's like, oh. it's like 50 degrees out, dude. Like, <laughs> like this is like, uh, you're going to cut somebody with your nipples weather. Like, keep a shirt on. and the I, I thought it was great on that la- or that last day we did the BFR. And it was instantaneously. Everybody's like, BFR, shirt's off. And it was a giant oh, meat packing facility <laughs> in there. <laughs> our, our one guy, like, that was that was his moment. Uh, he has trained his Super Bowl. entire that career was Super Bowl. that one moment. He's that like, was it. Finally. God damn it. And I'll tell you, he did have a really dope uh, uh, vein across the top of his chest where I was like, not going to lie, that fucking vein is pretty impressive, dude. I was going to. He shredded out, man. And like that was exactly why I picked him like to do the demo on those thoracic extension deads because like you can see everything in his back. It's, it's well, amazing. What I thought was best, we were out at the bar last night and I finally got the backstory of like why he's so focused on getting so jacked. He's single. At single and then Vegas pool parties. Uh, specifically yeah no well last time we were there he was uh, with his girl and then i saw him i was like yo man you look at your shape he's like well i'm single i'm like <laughs> best reason alone like i always love the memes that they show like the before and afters and they're like married unmarried yeah pretty good <laughs> vegas pool parties whoa great great whoa so what did we learn this weekend oh man we, we learned Anything? a lot um i think you know everything that we just covered obviously all, all those big takeaways but i think it's uh, really cool to see everything that we've been we've been building together and been working towards just coming to fruition. Nice, yeah, it was really uh, awesome to see all that. I like having the change of venues. I like having mm-hmm. like a lecture and classroom down here, and then training there, and then traveling too. So the spaces are different, so it kind of separates the mind. I think sometimes when we would lecture in a gym and then immediately start moving, there was just like this kind of like constant fire hose. I think when you kind of change into like, okay, here we are in the classroom setting. Now let's go out up to the, up to the shop or the gym. I mean, I, I personally like it. And we did some third monkey stuff, which was, which was funny because, uh, so you guys are, from, I mean, uh, for the listeners, uh, fire ants, which are a real deal here on here in Texas. And, uh, I pretty aggressively treat the entire property with fire to, for fire ants. Like, uh, like it's, it's one of my fucking like, Every Saturday, I like basically drive around, and then uh, I always put uh, whenever I, I put seed or anything, I always dump a ton of uh, fire ant, uh, these little like granules in everything. So I, I like constantly am putting out fire ant stuff, and so I've got to the point where I felt like I beat them back. Well, my neighbor doesn't treat; they're uphill. We got this crazy fucking rain that washed out a huge part of our road. All of their fire ants found home on our <laughs> property. So as we were walking around, there were just fire ants everywhere, and I was like. 
these things. And uh, it was funny. Chris was walking out. We were going to do the third monkey. And he's like, hey, we're going to do it over there. And then there was like 50 cones. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, standard lacrosse practice rather than like cones to line your field. You just put cones in all the anthills because we're on like shitty middle school fields mm-hmm. or parks. So it's brought that tradition here because, all right, you're not going to sprint to the cone. You're going to avoid that cone at all costs. And one initial selected field, they're still out there. I got to clean them up about 15 landmines. Well, <laughs> just leave them out there. That way I know how to go treat. So, okay. uh, but yeah, I'm pretty aggressive on that. Uh, and they are the meanest little bastards. Like the other day I got bit, uh, I stepped in a, in a, uh, I was wearing flip-flops and I stepped in one and then I jumped right into another one. And, uh, <clears throat> man, they got me to the point where I came down and I was like, dude, this is awful. I hate them. They, uh, they had a huge, um, uh, there was a huge problem with, uh, with quail. So the, uh, fire ants were just murdering like ground nesting birds and killing quail. So there was a huge problem with that. So they had to actually hire people to, to, uh, repopulate quail here in Texas. So we talked to a dude who had like 60,000 quail eggs that he was incubating because the fire ants, I mean, he'd go out and basically sets them out because the fire ants fucking just decimate them. I hate those Native things. to South America, invasive species for North. When did they come? Because I heard they were I, here I in the 80s. I just looked that up. They were accidentally introduced to the U.S. around the 1930s through the port of Mobile, Alabama, probably in soil used for the ships and have been spreading like wildfire fire ever since. Yeah, like pigs and, and fire ants. I think, I think it was crazy. Uh, one of the guys was telling us a story about one of their, their other brothers as well. Who was, it was his party trick. To dunk his nest, his nuts in a fire ant's nest. That was his thing. Man. Yeah. It's like those guys that like walk on nails and stuff like that. I'm like, how do you desensitize your ball sack to fire ants? Well, the problem I, is when they bite you, right? You get like these, like at least for me, I get these blisters uh, when they initially bite. Yeah. It's not bad. And then it's the next day they start to itch. Like two or three two or three days later, if you itch them, they like turn into like almost like pussy whitehead looking mm-hmm. things. And then you're like, oh, look at that zits on my feet. And uh, it's disgusting. Like I fucking hate them to the point where I'm like Saturday, I'm like, dude, I have, I, I'll go to track supply and I get these huge, like 50 gallon bags of it. And I just kind of like basically drive around and, uh, we'll get like, I have Kate put flags with the kids mm-hmm. and I get them and I'm like, okay, uh, I'll pay you, you know, a, like, I think it was like 10 cents a hill or a quarter a hill and, uh, put the flags and we just go out and bomb them every weekend. And, uh, we were, we were literally kicking their ass and then that rain came and I'm like fucking neighbors. So now we might have to like figure out how we do that piece. Uh, they've spread as far west as California. Man, as far north as only the middle of Oklahoma. I guess the cold kills them. them down. I wonder how they... Um, so they'll go. take over California easy. Well, what's, what's pretty... Well, yeah, everything does. Uh, what's pretty wild is um, like if you bomb them, like you'll kill that hill and then they'll just move. And so I think like to actually kill that hive, you got to like try to get the queen. Mm-hmm. And then one time I poured gasoline on top and then I lit it on fire to try to burn away the uh, um, the earth to see what it looks like. Dude, it's an incredible maze underground. Mm-hmm. And then they're, they're super deep. So I think what happens when it gets cold or anything happens, they just go down deep and lay dormant. And the minute the, the rain comes out or any, any heat, they come up. Have you seen where the dudes will do like uh, molten steel? Super neat. Yeah. Mm. yeah and they, they really pour cool. it into those anthills. Yeah. Kind of using it like it's a, like it's a mold, yeah. basically. And then it, obviously it kills. You pull it out. Yeah, yeah. They dig it out. And then they, they, cool. they wait for it to dry. It, like, yeah. it looks like tree roots or something like that. You know, like it's, it's, it's it's fascinating. Uh, yeah, Nature's so cool. <laughs> well, what's what's amazing is not only like so so like if you see it, it just looks like dirt. 
And if you touch it within like, it's literally like a millisecond, all of a sudden they just fucking come out mm -hmm. and they just start running around trying to like, you know, attack whatever. But I mean, it's literally like to the point where we like try to time it, you like touch it and they just come. It's, it's crazy. My neighbor was convinced that uh, if you took a shovel and you like shoveled one, you could throw it in the other one and they would fight to the death. But I never. I, you didn't test that theory? I, I did, but I, I don't. I can't tell if they fought to death <laughs> because the thing didn't die. Yeah. So maybe like. Maybe they just joined forces at that point. Yeah, maybe. Yep. We should get some of that for in here. Uh, yeah, um, cool. That'd be fitting. Who, uh, that was uh, like when we went over to Jesse James' shop. So we uh, did a little tour. We went over and visited Jesse's shop. And I got a chance to go over and see how he, uh, you know, manufactures and cuts and the CNCs for all his guns and the bikes and everything. And he was talking about, what was he talking about? Like, like basically like scarring metal using uh, oh, thermite? Yeah. Use, yeah, yeah, yeah. Using explosives to, to, uh, to shape, shape and scar metal. Yeah. yeah. He was saying like making gas tanks, like setting up a mold flat mm -hmm. thing and then using thermite to explode it and like push it into molds yeah yeah he was saying that they did that in the uh in the 30s to build uh to build different things for like ships and stuff like mm -hmm. that and so like these huge huge uh areas were erected and like put vacuum onto the like a, the like a, a building the size of like the gym um and they would vacuum the air and then they would you know set Detonate. off detonation of some nature and it basically just you know uh fill to to that shape really cool cool way to shape metal and i wonder how many people died in the process of figuring that out there's like one dude that knows how to do it and he just blows himself up <laughs> there were but, some casualties but i guess it was well worth it for his art well, <laughs> you gotta functionality. Things, you know? well yeah. i mean uh, if you think about like uh sometimes when they were forming those ships because the plates were so thick i've always wondered like how did they shape that stuff i mean there's no way you're going to put that thing on an english wheel or a yoda or anything mm -hmm. so the the fact that they were like using uh like a creating a vacuum and then um, using like detonating things to push them into these molds. Like uh, I forgot the example he used, but I was like, oh shit, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that was cool. I know that was for you being, uh, you know, coming from that welding background, motorcycle yeah. mania and all that. It's kind of neat. Yeah, man, that was, uh, you know, I'm, I was talking to my wife about it, but like, um, you know, Jesse James was such a influential figure to me at one point in time. Cause I mean like that, literally shaped maybe uh five ten years of my career like all the way through high school college and then when i started working you know i was working as a welder and uh like it, it's it was a really cool experience to actually get to you know kind of um take someone who is kind of like this almost mythological creature in some ways i mean like the <laughs> dude uh, he's he's an amazing welder right like he's very good at a lot of stuff like his metal forming skills is what's so cool and um you know getting to meet somebody like that like they always say you don't meet your heroes or anything like that and i don't he's not a hero like he's just interesting guy right but uh man it was, it was fascinating it's fascinating to get to see like how he interacts with people how he uh, carries himself yeah i mean uh there's always been a lot of weird, weird negative stuff about him uh you know like people uh, and i'm like i've never seen that side he's always been like very gracious and like you know hey like uh, bring the guys over we'll take him through i mean he's you know always been very very gracious to me so i got nothing bad to say about him i don't world. know how you could say anything negative about a guy that has like nine frenchies <laughs> yeah he's like a frenchie hoarder yeah uh like a weird cat lady but with frenchies um yeah that's uh well you, dude so what's wild is uh the way i got into bikes um i used to like i said uh when i was in college i used to work security for these uh, uh these raves and i used to work at this place called the dna lounge it was like 11th and harrison and um, where I used to park was right near this uh, 
this gay bar that was called the Chrome Eagle. And it was like literally like the village people, like like dudes in leather, you know, like basically uh, like just nonstop Judas Priest uh, was like deal. But they always had these fucking dope bikes outside. So I'd walk by and um, I remember like looking at the bikes and like some of them were like ugly and gaudy, but like a few of them were pretty cool. And uh, so I'd always walk by and it kind of got me more interested in bikes. And then uh, one night we were at the DNA lounge, a bunch of Hell's Angels showed up and they parked and like it was funny because like when they rode up, like, the, you know, the guys would always like uh, at the Chrome Eagle would catcall. It was like big deal. I got catcalled. And uh, when the Hell's Angels like, showed up, they started catcalling them. And I went over and I looked at all the dudes, the angels, you know, they were all riding like FXRs with like elevated risers and like some cool, some guys had some panheads and some shovels and just like rigids and some other bikes. And uh, I was like, those bikes are cool. I want one of those. So I ended up with uh, uh, actually before I ever uh, got a Harley or an American bike, I, I had a 76 uh, Honda 750 Supersport. Uh, and I used to ride the shit out of that thing. It was the, you know, the four cam with super traps and it was such a cool bike. Now that's like the quintessential cafe cruiser. Yeah. And I paid like 300 bucks for it. I would like to see you on that bike. That's gotta be like, it was, it, it's a good size bike. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty wide. I mean, um, it's not a fucking huge bike. I mean, believe me, I make a lot of bikes look like I'm just like a big dude, with a motorcycle <laughs> hanging out of my ass. But uh, that bike was pretty cool, and I used to ride it back and forth because, one, I could park it anywhere, and it was easy to cut through traffic. And so I would ride that thing back and forth to work. And uh, it was funny because I was, like, in a no-man's land. I didn't want to park where, like, the Chrome Eagle was because I didn't know what was going to happen. And so then I also didn't want to park, so it was, it, was, it was a good. And then when I got to the NFL, I was like, I'm going to get a bike. But I want, like, a badass rigid chopper, kind of like I'd seen those guys in San Francisco ride because a few of those guys rode some sick fucking bikes. Something just beat your kidneys right out of your back. And then I rode a rigid shovelhead four-speed kicker, 18-over <laughs> Springer. It's still in the shop. I've, I've never been able to sell it uh, just because I've never wanted to sell it. But uh, there was a time in my life where I could fucking ride a rigid. I rode it, like, from Daytona to fucking Key West. <laughs> and uh, now the thought of riding a rigid, I want to throw up in my mouth. Yeah. yeah. Well, I got some fun facts to wrap this up. Based off of you, you're saying oh, a lot of people died for this new art. I just looked up uh, some construction deaths, canals and railroads, extremely deadly. Oh. So over the years, yeah. uh, bridges, surprisingly not. Uh, uh, but right now, like you see the death tolls decrease as technology and safety and all that. But there's a jump in 2015, since 2015, in 2022, Qatar hosts the World Cup. And there was some shady shit when they announced it. And FIFA got in trouble for scandals and all that. Well, no OSHA reg regulations. Since they started construction in 2015, 6,000, an estimated, they don't know, 6,750 people have died building a total of nine new stadiums. Wow. So this, this country, like, I don't even think they're going to host the event because of heat and all this fears because the weather is so hot there. What? Uh, how all these people will die for nothing. Uh, one, one of the most insane ones was the, uh, Suez Canal. So they, uh, um, the Suez Canal construction, like the amount of deaths that they had. And I think the thing that was the most amount of deaths came from when they, they brought the workers in, they weren't, they didn't give them food. So mm -hmm. what they were doing is they were killing birds, but then they real, but then they quickly realized that the birds ate the mosquitoes that actually gave out the oh, malaria. Yeah, here it is. And so malaria basically decimated like wow. all of these 18. guys. Yeah, yeah eighteen sixty nine, one hundred and twenty thousand oh. estimated. Yeah, building the Suez Canal, and then yeah, they figured, ah, oh, fuck it, we'll, we'll not feed them. 
we'll just let them hunt. And the, so those guys killed all the birds, and then the, they ate all the mosquitoes, and then the malaria went through and fucking decimated them. And then in 1914, the Panama Canal, 30,609. Similar deal. They now, yeah. region is called the Fever Coast yeah, because they sent people there and then... Yeah, and it, yeah. it was because they were just like hunting birds and monkey, like anything they could eat. And uh, it just like, it's like here in Texas, the reason we put out all those purple martin houses is the purple martins come and eat the mosquitoes and they eat fire ants. And so the, if you have purple martins on your property, which are those houses over here, mm-hmm. so you basically build them these condos and just hoping to God they show up and then they show up every year and like in the spring. And uh, actually, I don't even know if it's the spring. I forget what time of year. But they show up and like if, if they come to your property, they will eat every mosquito. Hmm. And so we've been really lucky. They've been coming every year. Uh, but when we first came, they didn't come. And then I had to put out these like Purple Martin hotels. So you'll when you drive around Texas, you'll see these kind of elevated. They look like birdhouses. And people are like, what are they? And they're for Purple Martins. You know what? It's really interesting bringing up all that nature stuff. If there's anything we learn from movies is Jurassic Park and the ripple effect. Uh, one small change can have such a dramatic impact like those birds and the, the mosquitoes and malaria when them introducing wolves back into oh dude into the Yosemite National Park and all that it's one of my favorite things is when they uh, they brought the wolves back and they basically because there was no predator for the deer and so all of a sudden the deer were getting killed off they weren't eating the shrubbery as much and like the rivers actually like reformed because the um, uh, the deer weren't eating all like the fo- the foliage, and so because of it, they were pu- they started pushing the river back to its natural. I mean, like super that, cool stuff. Yeah, like they showed like a time lapse of what it looked like when they brought wolves back, and everything was healthy. Well, I think about that same ripple effect. From you asked like what our big learning factors were from this week. That I think that's huge. The ripple effect now we're going to have on these guys as they go back to where they came from and start implementing all the changes that we made. It was just one small little variable, five days, a lot of information, but now that's going to completely shift and change the trajectory of their lives and their careers, which is just super rewarding. Well, and uh, I mean, we did a similar event out in, uh, um, in Virginia beach. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but the problem was because they were in the work environment, they were kind of getting pulled in and out. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they had the time to like really dive into it the way they should. And then so assimilated too. Yeah. So I think it was it was really uh, really valuable. I think yeah. it was fun, and it was cool, and always fun guys to work with. Yeah. So cool. Anything else, Mister McQuilkin? Nope. Doctor McQuilkin. Uh, easy. Honorary. 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 I mean, it's been long enough. We know each other for a good bit now. You've learned a lot. Uh, <laughs> we got to get these guys to the airport. Okay. So signing off. Well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. Bye. 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 Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Head to powerathletehq.com backslash training to choose from a number of programs to meet your specific performance goals. And if you like to break a mental sweat too, visit academy.powerathletehq.com and become a real stakeholder in you or your athlete's success. Until next time, bye!